0: National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, November 22nd of 2023, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together every Wednesday here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to explore national security challenges and opportunities. So tomorrow is Thanksgiving, a time when many families come together to celebrate. In most American households, a large feast is shared by all. In other households, all across America, this may not be the case. American food shelves have been seeing increased use before, during, and since the COVID-19 pandemic. Food shelves in our country see greater visitation when the economy isn't doing well. While many Americans are doing very well right now, some of our fellow citizens are struggling. I highlight these things because America, the wealthiest, most powerful nation on the planet, remains challenged by food security. Now, imagine what it's like in places with failed governments or dictatorial governments where the elites gather food resources to themselves and their supporters, like the security services or the military, leaving other citizens to survive on scraps. Food is a vital necessity. We can't live without it, and access to food drives many national security decisions, made by governments around the world. So, fittingly, as it is almost Thanksgiving, and this show always looks at national security, we're going to explore the nexus of food security and agricultural global supply chains with our core topic of national security. With us to consider these important strategic challenges is Devry Bufner Forwork. Devry Bufner Forwork is the founder and CEO of Devry BV Sustainable Strategies. Raised in the Salinas Valley of California, Debbie grew up in a small farm town where she began to understand at a young age that the world was interconnected, especially when it came to feeding people. She carried her passion for feeding the world with her into university and graduate school where she majored in agricultural and managerial economics at the University of California at Davis and completed her Master of Science in Agricultural Economics with a specialization in public policy and international trade at Cornell University in New York. Devery is a well-known global food executive and corporate officer, having served as chief communications officer and global head of corporate affairs at Cargill, and as chief corporate affairs officer at Grubhub. She's also a sustainability entrepreneur, founding founding DV, Devery BV Sustainable Strategies, her own strategy and advisory company. Now, Devry is an international business development and diplomacy strategist, as well as an expert in international trade relations, demonstrated by her success a senior policy advisor at Aiken Gump. She's also a leader in international and regional corporate affairs roles at Cargill and in roles at the U.S. International Trade Commission, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, and the World Bank Group. Devery is also a member of the Advisory Board of Latin America Advisor and committee member of U.S. Pacific Economic Cooperation Council. Devery Bufner-Forwerk, welcome to National Security This Week.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I think we've spent your whole show on the intro, so
0: Well, I want to make sure everybody understands that you are incredibly well-qualified to talk about this Fantastic.
1: Awesome. Thank you. And I just want to say thank you to all the listeners who listened through that, and good morning. It's an honor to be with each and every one of you. If you're on the road, having your morning coffee, walking the dog,
0: it's great to be here. So how was your drive down to Northfield this morning?
1: Well, it was wonderful to get up early and see the red sunrise past the, the agricultural fields. And I loved coming in because I could see, you know, the post-manufacturing and you, you just get the, the, the vibe and the small town feel. And also, you know, this is, you know, no matter where I've been in the world and lived in different places like China and India and across the U.S., um, there's nothing like the hometown feel when you drive in and you kind of get a good sense of, of what people do each day.
0: And Northfield does, definitely has that when you're driving into town, you see the yeah. sign, you know, Cows, yeah. Colleges, and Contentment. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, well, so <laughs> I belong here. <laughs> so, for much of your adult life, you've had a laser focused career connected mm-hmm. to the global agricultural economy. Ma- many people see specific economic sectors as they grow up, whether that be mining, manufacturing, mm-hmm. farming, and ranching, uh, and many, many others, but they don't necessarily pursue. Those career paths, when they strike out on their own, what was it about agriculture that captured your attention so deeply as you were growing up in Salinas uh, that you chose to major mm-hmm. in agriculture economics and pursue a career in agriculture and related fields?
1: It's a good question. You know, in my 20s, I'd be on an airplane, and someone next to you will say, hey— Tell, tell me what you do. And I'd say, well, I'm an agricultural economist. And they'd look at me and say, you chose that. <laughs> and now today, everyone's, an, I say, an armchair foodie, right? Everyone's interested in it um, to some extent. And I chose it. You know, I'm, I'm the daughter of an electrical engineer. My father was um, an electrical engineer in Southern California, you know, in the defense industry in the, in the 80s. And my mother was a public school teacher. And when we moved to this small town in the Salinas Valley – um, which any of, if any of you have ever read Steinbeck, um, it, it basically the reason I'm such a fan is because when you read his books, it's explaining the landscape, mm. right? Um, w- there wasn't much to do when we moved there. And I quickly became involved in the 4-H, our local 4-H community. Um, but then in high school, I got into the Future Farmers of America, and that was it. And, you know, had the opportunity to get at a very young age at the age of 14 educated on an industry right and then i looked out my back door on the way to school and i could see it all i could see you know the anything that you put in a salad we we grow there now we also grow wine grapes <laughs> a lot of wine grapes okay. but i could see you know the laborers in the field I could see, you know, and I actually interned at one of the largest iceberg lettuce shippers in the world, right? And I was typing phyto, what's known as phyto certificates, export certificates to export to Japan, and I, I just—it was all around me, and it was a dynamic industry, and it dealt with every issue. It dealt with immigration, it dealt with labor, water, water constraints. I mean, we're here's a valley that's suffering from what we call saltwater intrusion because we're pumping our aquifers, and. And I could see, you know, we had um, the socioeconomic issues. But at the same time, we were a salad bowl to the world. And I just realized that this is an industry I want to be involved in. And so I, I set out at an early age, 14. Then I, you know, well, I took a little diversion. I ran for state office, California FFA, you take a year out. So I went up and down the state of California before college, going into classrooms, educating people on our food supply. And then, you know, then took the academic route and um, actually set out to be a professor. I had a full ride to Cornell. My goal was the way I was going to change the world was to be a professor in ag, econ, and international trade. And then I I changed course because I got antsy and wanted to go change the world uh, through public policy.
0: Well, and you kind of did that. I mean, you had a lot of uh, amazing roles that you've played mm -hmm. in in government, uh, in in the private corporate uh, environment. Uh, you've had a huge impact uh, on the international ag uh, sector. Okay. So we should probably establish some uh, some definitions yeah. early in our show here to ensure that we all, especially me, understand the key concepts that are sort of vital to understanding this nexus of uh, national security and, and food security. And so the first term, food security. What, yeah. what does that term mean to you personally, and how should we think about food security on a local, regional, national, even an international scale? Yeah.
1: I mean, food security, my definition versus the the constructed definitions of the food and um, security and hunger community. My definition is that everyone at every moment that they need access to calories, the right kind of calories, nutrition has that access and that availability so that they are able to. I, I always say, by the way, that I, I thought I was in the food business until I until I had this big aha that I'm actually in the energy business mm. And what I mean by that is that food is essentially an energy source to optimize human potential. And what we have done by not ensuring that the entire you know, population of the world has access to energy is we're sub-optimizing humanity because at every moment in time, an individual that needs the access to their energy source is not getting that. Uh, so it's to me, it's a very... Um, very, you know, real issue. And it's not just, oh, we solve it once, right? No. We as humans, the one thing that unifies us is that we all have to eat every day, right? You can't just solve it one day and be done with it. Now the def the constructive definitions of the community are that food security is that an individual doesn't have access or availability of availability or access Um, also through affordability of food the food and nutrition that they need to live a healthy life. Now hunger is a result of ins- food insecurity, and so those those two terms are not similar. So, you can be a food insecure um, individual where actually they you know it's it's low, moderate, or high, um, and then there's then that leads to the consequence, which is hunger. And then on the hunger scale, it's how hungry are you? Is it a couple times a week? Is it every day? Is it where we get to chronic hunger? And you know, domestically we have we have a food insecurity and a hunger problem. Yeah. Um, internationally, the numbers are close to 800 million people. Right. 800 million people, and domestically here in the United States, um, the 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 numbers are about 44 million people. Of our entire population are food insecure
0: in the richest most powerful country on the planet yes
1: and so I say and if you go to the the, the website where we founded this organization called hungry which is heartland unify now global hunger relief initiative it spells out hungry we I, I say there look uh, food you know food insecurity and hunger is not an over there problem it's an everywhere problem yeah right it's in your community and there's a lot of hidden hunger a lot of shame associated with hunger People may hide it, and you may not even know it.
0: Yeah, I mean and that and that, that shame factor has I mean that's part of our society, mm-hmm. uh, people who need to go uh, get food at, at food shelves. Yep. There's always been a stigma to that. It's just terrible that, yeah. that we still apply that stigma to yeah. people who are in those situations. yeah
1: And from a national security standpoint, let me give you a statistic that's shocking, um, shocking, sad, disheartening. Um, one in nine working age veterans, are food insecure, mm. one in nine. So while you're thanking veterans for their service, think about every one in nine of them it doesn't necessarily have the um, the security to know where their next meal's coming from. And 24% of act- active duty service members were found to be food insecure yeah. at some level, yeah. um, whether that's low, moderate, or, or high in 2020.
0: Yeah, yeah, that that's a function of uh, mostly the, the junior kids not getting paid what they really need to be paid to yeah. live on a modern economy yeah. in in this country. Yeah. So let's let's so there's a there's a whole bunch of aspects to this that I want to get into, and and maybe the first thing we should start with is uh, learning a little bit more about how the global commodities markets function. Uh, it's kind of high level stuff. Uh, we've covered oil a bit on this show, okay. uh, and as a commodity, and, and how oil prices rising and falling are based on demand and uh, and production capacity. So do agricultural commodities, do they function roughly the same way? Maybe you could give us sort of, sort of examples of how global ag- agricultural supply chains function, just so we sort of understand the push and pull of this and how that will impact uh, food security around the world.
1: Okay, and I hope this is interesting to all you listeners out there, so I'll, I'll try not to, to bore you too much, but— yes global commodities markets work a lot like other commodities and are dependent on other commodities right so the when you see the price of oil shock on the markets then you can immediately begin to think what is the consequence to the price of food right because it's a it's an it's a huge input into the production mm-hmm. um so you have these global commodities markets that are um where you have more standardized you know commodities like corn and soy and wheat and you know, cotton and sugar, but then you also have these other markets, um, for horticultural products that you may not see kind of in the global space. Um, an interesting statistic is that most people think that, that we're entirely dependent on global trade, that food is just, all of your food moves across borders. Well actually only about 14% of, uh, food it moves across borders. So about 14% of your calories are traded. So international trade fills a gap okay. often. In and um and it's that's here
0: in the U.S. You mean, or is that globally? that's globally fourteen
1: okay. percent of food that is that that people eat globally is traded across borders. So it's a misnomer to think that most of your food systems are entirely global. Actually, most food systems are local, and then they supplement with trade. And in some instances, it's to fill the gaps, right? So you have net food importing countries around the world that are not producers, right? Small. Countries like um, Central America, they produce certain things, maybe, but they're not producing maybe the large-scale, um, you know, grains that the, the grain production that they need, etc. So you have a lot of net food importing countries that are dependent. Some countries are both powerhouse importers and exporters, like here in the United States. Right, we we run an export surplus on on agriculture, but we're also one of the largest importers in the world. Um, so so we do have a global commodities market and um, what the um, what the the grain exchanges actually solve is what is going to be the price of food that is is moving you know across those borders um, from a from a staple commodities perspective you've got the powerhouse producers of the united states canada countries across south america brazil paraguay bolivia you know etc we have large bread baskets in um, Central and um, Eastern Europe, like Ukraine. We can get into that if you'd like. Um, Australia, really carrying their weight on the global trade and production market. I mean, they've had bumper crops in the last couple of years. Um, and, and then here's, a, here's something that's interesting, that until I actually lived in China and lived on the ground and understood it, is China's the largest food producer in the world. And so we like to think, okay, we are the largest. But why might that be? They're they're the largest food producer. We may not know it of most commodities, not all commodities, but they're also the largest consumer. So they are a huge importer and no one would have ever imagined once China joined the World Trade Organization and um, came into um, essentially attempt to play by the trade rules that they would be importing so many U.S. soybeans like we thought maybe 50 million metric tons. I mean, they are exceeding 100 million metric tons of of U.S. soybeans, um, that, you know, year on year now. So it's it's unbelievable um, the gaps that that get filled in markets like China, et cetera, from trade.
0: Yeah, which which makes things very complicated when we have uh, sort of a collision of foreign policy issues uh, mm-hmm. like we have going on right mm-hmm. now with with China in so many areas. Because mm-hmm. the, I mean, for Minnesota, 20 percent of our economy is tied to ag. Uh, and so for Minnesota farmers, for the ag community, exports to China is a hugely important part of our economy. Hugely important. Yeah. Hugely important. Uh, so for our audience, uh, you're listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, M1080, and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Devery Bufner-Forwerk from Devry BV uh, Sustainable Strategies, and we're discussing the nexus of food security and American national security. So... Is most of the international trade and ag commodities controlled entirely by the private sector? Uh, Or do some or perhaps all governments around the world play a key role uh, in influencing the global agricultural commodities trade for their own national economic benefit?
1: Yeah. Yes. And (laughs) Um, controlled. I mean, it's an interesting word, right? Controlled, because there's um, there is this notion that the food system is controlled by a few actors. Concentration is an issue, and if we can set that aside for a minute, and and I'll answer your broader question, we can get back to the, okay. the dangers of that. Um, but worldwide, food is a highly politicized yeah. industry, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is which is why we we collectively, or I having been in the U.S. government and the U.S. Trade Representative Public Policy, um, try to to spend our time negotiating the rules of trade. Uh, food gets highly political very fast why i I like to say look um you know uh tr- depending on where you stand it let's just let 's just say as a as a politician on food is whether whether you're importing or exporting right so if you're um or if you're i'm sorry whether you're subject to imports right it, you may take a very different stance on on trade and food trade depending on whether you're you're having to compete with um, more competitive imports versus being an exporter. And so, um, so essentially, you'll see across the globe, there's not a uniform approach to food. Depending on whether a country is vulnerable and import dependent, they may be more open to it. If they have little pockets of, pr- of producers, so I'll take Indonesia, for example. Um, Indonesia is net import de- dependent. However, they have pockets of small soy producers. They produce soy to turn it into... Um, things like um, their local tofu, et etc, highly politicized over the years because those are very powerful um, individuals and constituents in their country, and so from time to time you 'll see the Indonesian government sway back and forth between do we put what 's known as the bulag back in place, which is the the uh, the national buying agency, or do we open the market and let free trade go right so R- China really allow capitalism really allow capitalism to, to function, work, yeah. and so these governments are trying to Um, you know, figure out how they sway the political environment based on, you know, the impact of imports or not. China, for example, state-owned enterprises um, under the WTO, there are commitments by governments to phase state-owned enterprises out and allow for, um, for capitalist, um, you know, capitalist entities. Well, most of these capitalist entities are still tied heavily to the state, right? Um, I'll give you a really good example of some good behavior as it relates to how governments behave and that is New Zealand in fact, mm-hmm. I was in New Zealand last March to keynote their their national agriculture conference. New Zealand made some very tough decisions in the early 90s to transform their ag economy they they transformed their state-owned dairy in, cooperative into um, to what is now a national you know actually um, private enterprise called Fonterra it's a global powerhouse but Fonterra runs it is a business it's no longer tied to the state they Nash they um, took all of their uh, state enterprises and and turned them into private sector they made some very strong um, commitments on on, um, subsidization they do not subsidize their farmers which gets them into a tangle right now it's a really tough climate between the farmers and the government um, which actually leads to government change so um, there you know there's You just you take it country by country and you start to see what the domestic constituents want and it becomes very complicated very quickly, which is why I've always been a proponent of getting back to the WTO, all of us sitting around the table and negotiating the rules and keeping countries at least trying to hold them accountable to those rules. Yeah, Um, that's really important for food
0: security. Yeah, I know that a lot of the trade uh, negotiations that we have with the European Union, for mm-hmm. instance, they heavily subsidize certain aspects of their ag sector. Yep. We do the same as here in do. the United yep. States. So there's a sort of, you, I guess you have to sort of, it's a give and take as uh, between subsidies or tariffs to try and balance the, yeah. uh, the equation a little bit, right? It, it
1: is, and um, to, to to make it also relevant to the the food security and national security element, um, yes, Europe is heavily subsidized. In the US, we've actually gone in the, the other direction. We are now subsidizing more than we were even five, well, actually five, 10 years ago. And so um, when we think about the notion that we're subsidizing um, our our economy, Europe is subsidizing and Europe is then also heavily protecting, that's the difference. Um, we fortunately allow for um, moderate levels of tariffs, you know, Im- imports and exports, which keeps our food affordable and also available yeah. to a variety of imports. Europe is heavily protected. And so, what ends up happening is um, countries who want to access those markets have to, you know, have to get in and negotiate those deals. And then that kind of keeps them in a cycle of sort of little sort of um you know sprinkling of yeah you can trade into our market etc but but it doesn't allow some of these ag economies that could access the European market more competitively um to actually reach their full potential in these markets and so it 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 creates a system of of imbalance between where production zones exist and frankly there's a lot of un, un, untapped potential across um you know North Africa for example Um, The Caribbean economies, you know, could actually reach greater potential if it wasn't that they were being sprinkled, you know, these little opportunities to access these markets. Okay. Yeah. Uh,
0: I want to ask also about uh, technology in the agriculture sector. How how much research development, testing, and evaluation, or or RDT and E, as we say, uh, takes place around the world with crop science, genetic development, or other scientific techniques to enhance food production. And can you kind of give us a sense of the amount of money that's invested into expanding production capacity through science for both, you know, grains and for even livestock? Maybe, maybe you could highlight which companies are doing the heaviest lifting in this area uh, and why that matters from a national security perspective.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, at a macro level, the companies that are doing the most R and D would be on sort of the the tech, you know, technology and technological advancement side, and it's really hard to get a number of if you go company by company. Yeah. Um, you know, this is an issue that's being raised: is are we grossly underinvesting R and D? Um, and the answer is yes. Now, st- you know, let's just take a look here because I brought some numbers, knowing I'd have to answer this. So essentially. Um, Year on year, what's being invested? Let's take public expenditures um, between 2000 and 2002. Um, Ag knowledge and innovation systems um, investment in those rose by about it's let's just say a billion dollars per um, per country in the United States, India, and Brazil. Okay, now China then started spending in that early era between in, in the early 2000s, and they were at about a um, billion three, and now they're at about five times they're 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 outspending us five times so they're at about 6.6 billion so between 2019 and 2021 the average public spe- sector spending china's outspending us india and brazil combined so that's in, that's that's an, an interesting statistic so that's government investment that's government investment. investment Okay. now in the public research side there's if anyone, one of you listeners is interested the chicago council is actually highlighting this and so they've put a piece of paper together to inform the U.S. Farm Bill, for example, and they're saying, "Look, um, we've gone down from 1995 dollars of about 6.5 billion a year to in 2019 we're only spending about 5.22 billion, um, and in all combined ag research. And during the same time here in the United States, for all other research, non-ag." you've seen a 150% increase. So we are prioritizing research in other areas. Like
0: tech, maybe.
1: Yes. And speaking of tech, I, you want to get something that's stuck in my craw here. Um, <laughs> let's just think about generally how much is um, being spent. Well, I w- would get into this notion of um, how much we're spending on the metaverse, for example. And so we're looking at about 56 private sector-wise, about, oh, $57 billion in 2023 is expected to be spent in the metaverse, okay? Um, and and then by 2030, they're expecting that market to be about a $508 billion
0: spend. And, and, and we're, the metaverse, we're talking about like a, a virtual... A virtual world. Non, non, it's virtual not even Virtual world.
1: So <laughs> we think about the meager amounts we're spending on ag tech that I just gave you, and now that we're talking... Um, Let's also bring it back then to um, food security and hunger. Statistics are coming out. What would it cost for us to end hunger altogether? Okay. And there's, there's some studies that have been coming out about saying, let's, let's just say a German study came out. There's FAO studies. Let's, let's just say that it's kind of hovering around $50 billion a year to actually invest in ag infrastructure around the world. Another $14 billion on top to keep feeding people that are in desperate need. So we think about, let's just say that's oh $70 billion a year to end hunger, and we're spending right now in 2023 $56.6 billion in the metaverse. So we think about the, the lack of research dollars going in um, on the research side and then just the overall wastage of capital. Wasting of capital that's going to you know these alternative places and spaces, and not looking at what's directly in front of us. Yeah. So, well, and I didn't talk about the con- the you know who controls the food system. Concentration is an issue. Um, we're addressing it here in the United States. Me- where, meaning monopolies. Yeah, I mean, meaning you know, for companies having having the bulk of the you know the meat processing in right. the United States, for example. Yeah. Um, so. So there's a recognition, especially with COVID, when we saw a lot of demand destruction and then also a lot of the destruction of commodities not being able to make their way to people while right. we still had need, um, that we need to go back and see, do we need some more regional infrastructure in, you know, in really critical components? And the answer is yes. Yeah. And that's being filled by, you know, the federal government's putting putting money into um, encouraging more regional, you know, meat processing, et cetera. Um, but across the board, the more money you have and the larger you get, the more you can control, right. right? And so it's why I'm spending a lot of my time on, you know, farm all the way up to processor, going back and saying, what do we need to do to empower the farmers and the small and mid-sized producers um, to succeed?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, Debra, let's go a little deeper into some of the links between food insecurity and American national security. And I'd like to start with the, the impact of climate change. Climate mm-hmm. change on food production, especially across the global south. Uh, from all your work in the field of agriculture, uh, have you noted any trends in food production capacity in developing nations around the world where the infrastructure uh, may not be as robust as we have here in the United States? Uh, and, and what trends are you seeing, like due to drought, due to flooding, crop diseases, livestock diseases? Uh, does anything really kind of jump out at you from what you've seen?
1: Yeah, all of it jumps out, okay. unfortunately. Um, and it's, it depends on, you know, the country, it depends on the, the conditions in that given year. But I mean, for example, here there's across the the Midwest, there's a lot of discussion around the bold getting or the North getting, the bold North getting warmer, right? Are we going to see extended crop cycles, et cetera, which could be a positive thing, but it's also, um, exposing us to new challenges on the pest side, Mm -hmm. et cetera, um, we're seeing, so in the country of Australia, while they've been able to have very strong crop years in the last couple of years, there's always the constant threat. We we saw the um, the heat and the fires that they faced, you know, in certain parts of the country um, over the last few years. Canada up north is getting drier. We've all been, you know, kind of suffering from the wildfires there. Um, so, you know and and in some of these other as as i was mentioning net importing countries that are along the coast i mean um the challenge is is of you know rising sea levels and so the the planning there is is challenging in brazil um which is ground zero for um for both food production but also saving saving um us from even greater and more dire climate consequences um we're seeing those um those farmers moving farther up north into and, and big swaths of the rainforest going year on year. So, you know, the, the challenges are, are really great. And the, and, and then with smallholder farmers across the globe, I mean, when their entire year, you know, years long investment is, is, is in, you know, a cocoa or a coffee um, production and, you know, they suffer a, you name it, what we're seeing around the world, typhoons, you know, um, Hurricanes, droughts, etc. Increased,
0: strength, increased, longer droughts. Those yeah, kinds
1: of things. I mean, across why when you ask about research, it, that that's why this is so important. There are so many facets of our complicated, integrated food system from pest management, soil health, re, you know, crop resiliency, water availability. I mean, you start to think about it in 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 holistic terms, and it's overwhelming right
0: it's a system of systems it's and every one of the subordinate systems needs to be healthy for the overall system to succeed 100% yeah uh for our audience you're listening to national security this week here on KYMN radio i'm your host john olson our guest today is devry bufner vorwerk from devry bv sustainable strategies and we're discussing the nexus of food security and american and national security so we just discussed the yeah. uh, the climate change climate change as, as a factor that impacts food production Uh, When when food production fails or even falls, uh, as we see from climate change and severe drought, uh, that kind of helped spur uh, the Syrian civil war Mm -hmm. that started in 2011. Now, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of other factors, too, but the farmers had been in, like, almost a 10-year drought. Mm -hmm. Uh, There just was no way to grow food anymore, Mm -hmm. and the government really wasn't doing anything to help them. So there was serious food insecurity. There was even hunger. Uh, pe- when, when people have no food or they have no food when crops fail uh, or, or they can't plant food because the weather patterns have changed and there's no rain. I mean, that's a function of mm-hmm. climate change. Uh, but food se- insecurity can lead to conflict like it did in Syria, uh, but also migration. Mm-hmm. So Syrian refugees from the Civil War uh, fled northward to Europe, for instance, uh, to, to places that still received reliable water from rain. Uh, and rain means crops can grow, which means food is available. Can you talk a little bit about the domino effect of what creates food insecurity, and and what can happen when food insecurity becomes rampant in a nation?
1: Yeah, seventy percent of the most food insecure um, populations are seventy percent of it is is they're in conflict zones. Okay, that's that's really important to to note. And so um, food and conflict go hand in hand. And so you've just mentioned the, the cascading consequences of, um, let's take Central America, for example, because let's take a really sensitive issue, folks, and by the way, I'm not one to, to shy away from talking about sensitive issues, um, because we can see the mass migration coming up north, um, and there's a con- there, it's, it's all, it's, you know, there's conflict mm-hmm. and insecurity, there's poverty is is at the core of food insecurity and hunger it's the cycle of poverty um, and then yeah there's just how difficult is it to to actually um, in in the case of um securing your food supply i mean if you 've got these two things conflict and poverty already those are reasons you're going to want to to find new places and spaces right yeah. um, Ad, and add
0: to that the impact of climate change Add to
1: add to yeah. that all of that. Um, and so, um, this is why I, I want to take this back to the National Security conversation and talk about um, the role of foreign aid and foreign assistance and Before anybody rolls their eyes out there um, I, I like to um, because i 've had these conversations before, so i 'm not trying to to fit anybody i want what I want to do is get us to a unified conversation around the importance of investing in conflict zones, the importance of investing in resilient. Food and ag production systems in other countries because when we invest, the return on the investment there is going to be much greater if people have a place to stay and live versus the, the cost of, of them moving and coming to the border, etc. Um, you know the the fo- just um, just a little quiz for all of you out there. What percentage of our overall budget in the United States is spent on foreign aid? Is it twenty five percent? Is it ten percent? What what percentage? get a number in your head. Less than 1% of our overall budget in the United States is spent on foreign aid. That's about a, that's 40 a tiny percent. about 40 billion dollars. Yeah. Now, less than about 5% of that is food aid, okay? In between that that 5% and the rest of is um is development aid, etc. and we can see the benefits in these conflict zones like you mentioned Syria. I have personal experience of, let's just take post-Soviet Union countries like Georgia. Mm-hmm. I was on the board of a nonprofit in Georgia where we took... Some of those aid dollars, those foreign aid dollars, and we invested in the ag infrastructure. Georgia has 24 microclimates; they have a they have an ag production um, capability, a lot like where I grew up in California. You just see it, and they say they're the origin of wine, right? Eight thousand years ago, but we took money, USAID money, invested in farm service centers, about 50 of them across that country. Okay, small investments, and when 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 vladimir putin brought his troops in in 2008 into tbilisi thinking at the end of the bush administration that george bush was going to have his hand off the you know off the dial our hand off the steering wheel uh, we were able he, you know the first things that he first things they did they burned the farming implements they took the tractors away they wanted to take away the ability of these farmers to farm what's the first thing we did we deployed more foreign aid to put the farmers back on the farms there's now a george bush highway in in t- running through Tbilisi, and also a very vibrant farm economy, but the threat of the conflict is is not gone. I've been to the front lines. Russia still has twenty has taken twenty percent of the sovereign territory of Georgia. You go stand, and there's barbed wire, and on the one side you'll see a, a gentleman whose hog was was there one night. The other night, now they're in Russian territory. So um, the cascading consequences of food insecurity, the inability of these these economies to, to produce and feed for themselves creates a huge national security risk for not only the United States, for the rest of the world, for the region. So the key is that we all wrap our brain around one of the, it, it, it costs a lot more to go to war, it, the human consequences of that, the financial consequences of that, and and it costs a lot less to, um, to go hand in hand with allies and invest in their economies so all that right, they, yeah. yeah.
0: Uh, foreign direct investment. Yeah. If you can create the stability to make that attractive, yeah. that's really helpful. Yeah, uh, I, I want to ask one one other, or make a statement and and talk one more area about this before we move on to the next topic. But uh, the United States has had a a very you, you mentioned this the foreign aid a long storied history of supporting food security around the world. Yeah, uh, even during the height of the Cold War, the United States was willing to provide significant agricultural assistance to the Soviet Union. Uh, we've we've provided massive food aid to North Korea, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Somalia with Operation Restore Hope. I was actually part of that in December of '92 uh, when when we went ashore to try and you know break the tremendous famine that was uh, that was the people of Somalia were suffering. How, how is America's national security bolstered? Uh, by concentrating on the soft power yeah. of helping to establish food security for nations around the world. Yeah.
1: Well, first of all, I've been remiss in not thanking you for your service, no, 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 no. John. And you've seen it hand in hand, right? You've seen how how the military might and our ability to do peacekeeping and has gone hand in hand with our ability to to feed people. You go into any of these places, those get to the brass tacks of what people need. What's the one thing that unites all of us around the world is our need to, to, to eat. So we should know that that should be just an appendage of our, you know, critical appendage of our, of our, um, our military, um, approach around the world and our peacekeeping approach. You know, the consequences, it's interesting this morning, I was up early trying to find this paper that I wrote in high school. I, you know, I have very few handwritten papers that I've, that I've kept and I don't know how I had the insight to write this, but it was in 1989 or early 1990 after the fall of the wall, and I was asked to write about, um, and I was asked to take the opinion, you know, on should we give foreign aid to the former Soviet Union? And it's handwritten, and and I came out saying absolutely 100%, right? Um, we should do this. It was very controversial. And... um you know, Ronald Reagan actually was the one who founded this nonprofit I was on. Mm-hmm. And it, it's now called Cultivating New Frontiers in Agriculture. Initially, he founded that um, because of the soft power requirements that he he and others could see, the need to, you know, be present with those who are going through the transitions, who um, might be subject to, you know, to military force um, from others over time. We can see this now, right? Um, you know, the um, Putin had a long-range long-term plan um, that he's now trying to carry out. And so um, the I would say that our, our insi- um, insight to put foreign aid in the former Soviet Union countries is what's holding that line today. Yeah. It's 100% what's holding that line. I'll give you a really good example. Um, I like folks to go on the Internet and, and pull up a map of North and South Korea. Many of you have seen this Okay, at night. right? One is dark and one is light. Yep. South Korea, that relationship um post post war was uh, built on aid. Our initial engagement with South Korea was aid, and now it's built on trade and foreign investment and that's the starkest example that I can give you now, as it relates to North Korea, we still continue to you know to um, as with with any sanctioned country. Uh, one thing to note is that um, exempt from sanctions are food and humanitarian. Um, trade, and so we can still attempt, and we do still attempt to to export to the twenty five million most mostly food insecure people because he's he 's keeping his people yeah hungry yeah. Yeah. um but the aid component's critical uh over time, one of the most important soft power um tools we have in our toolkit is trade, and this is where it gets really controversial w- What do you right. mean open trade? And I say, yeah, absolutely, because because um, the second you open those floodgates, it kind of calls the question to some, to these dictators, right? Doesn't change it, doesn't change their you know their their evil, not even hearts, just you know just what's what's driving them or motivating them, but it does open the society in a way that you can begin to move from aid to trade.
0: Yeah, and it, and it's a huge debate, and it's actually playing out right now uh, with Israeli operations in yes. Gaza. Yeah. Uh, I know one of the things that that you've been working on is uh, an international uh, treaty that prevents food being used yeah. as a weapon, as an example, uh, and and one of the huge debates with regards to aid and, and trade, even uh, with dictatorial you know governments, countries mm-hmm. around the world, is if we go in there and provide this economic assistance, the soft power aspect of that aren't we just going to strengthen the regime or in the case of Gaza aren't we just going to you know strengthen Hamas's hand by giving them wa- access to water and food and fuel and things yeah. like that it's a huge debate
1: it's a huge debate and it's one that um I'm very easy it's it's very uh, simple for me which is the citizens of, of any country um, are not governments and we right. make a different like I've always been able to make that differentiation and I can tell you where that comes from so so um, so yes, I've been working quite a bit with some former secretaries of agriculture, the former head of the World Food Program, myself and some others to um to frame what could be um an international treaty, an international treaty, and we use the word treaty on banning the weaponization of food because um we saw, I mean we've all looked in horror at what, you know, Vladimir Putin did by, you know, mining the, you know, the 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 ports around the Black Sea. I mean um, and then toggling back and forth and us having to negotiate on the black Sea grain grain right. trade initiative right um that's a clear example that's food weaponization that's using food as a weapon and there's no other way to describe that right. and so today it's it's ukraine tomorrow it's going to be another country um you know on october seventh the the immediate reactions um rightfully to defend your your country are we've got to you know we've we've got a um um, find ways to get our, you know, hostages back, etc. But one of the things that was on the list was no food, no fuel, and so the um, the key is today it's Gaza, tomorrow it'll be something else, and so it's not taking a political stance. Yep. Um, I have I have through my career figured out how to how to export grain to places like Iran, Cuba. I've told you I've started the large coalition, largest coalition in the country to end the embargo on Cuba. Has yeah, The government doesn't do itself any favors, but the 12 million people there who want access to affordable food are asking for access to affordable food. And so the, um, the way that I always thread that needle is to say, no, food is not a weapon. And we've got to hold the international system to some sense of peer, not sense of peer pressure, peer pressure. That in times of conflict, in times of war, you don't go into your toolkit and politicize the the food system. So it it sounds like it's a utopian view, um, but it's also how we build allies.
0: Well and it's it's the it's the soft power aspect that really changes people's perspective on, you know, what the US actually stands for. We're not delivering bombs on target, we're delivering food that people need to be able to eat to feed their children, yeah. you know, those kinds of things. Yeah.
1: And the second we step into the fray and erode the trust of the trading system yeah. and the trust of the food system, we lose. And that's what we're up against right now is um, some strong strong men, and I'll say men, some of these leaders around the world are trying to reconfigure the geopolitical trading scheme. And the best thing that we can do as the United States of America and as every citizen is take a deep breath in and out, not deny the power of trade, come together as one country and acknowledge that um, we must engage on the international stage. We must continue to be that trusted player, and we must continue to build allies where we can. And assure them you know what 's happening, John is a lot of these countries are trying to decide where are we going to get our grain, right, especially across Africa, yep. the African Union stepping up and going and and into into Moscow I mean, it's basically okay, let's hedge our bets let's go in and make sure we get some shipments out of you know out of Russia, but at the same time let's have some diplomatic tools with the United States. Well, actually, if we can create and continue to push sort of the international, you know, system of rules-based trade um, and and not allow these countries to go in and fracture, um, fracture alliances across Africa, Central America, et cetera, then we're going to be able to um, lead ourselves to, to continued peaceful solutions, right? So we do not want to tie one hand behind our, behind our back. Yeah. ignore the the power of trade. You know, it's really interesting
0: because uh, as you are just talking about those things, I'm reminded of the show that we did a a little while ago with uh, Professor Rejan Menon Mm -hmm. talking about this sort of uh, the existence of this, you know, non-aligned movement that's always been there even during the Cold War, but it's had a resurgence of late because you have the liberal democracies of the West on one side, uh, and then you have this sort of rising uh, cabal of autocratic leaders like... Uh, Putin, Xi Jinping, others, uh, and then you have the people in the middle, Mm -hmm. and that's like India and Brazil and lots of other countries that say, look, I don't don't really want to align with either side here. I have people that need to be fed. I have an economy that needs to function. I will compete my needs against the two sides and take the one that gives me the better deal. Yeah. And then you go to uh, a, a mutual friend of ours, well, not so much mm-hmm. a, an acquaintance of mine, Dan Rundy. Mm-hmm. I had him on the show with uh, his book, The American Imperative. Uh, you've known him a very long mm-hmm. time. Uh, he's a huge advocate for, you know, American aid, trade, and foreign direct investment as a tool of soft power uh, because, like you said, it's a heck of a lot cheaper than having to respond militarily to these issues. If we yeah. can stabilize countries and feed yeah. people, uh, that's a much cheaper way to create peace and security.
1: It is. And it gets us out of the box where we ask ourselves a question. And I'll, you know, for each of your listeners out there, ask yourself this question Have you been in a situation where you've said, why are we giving overseas when we should be giving here? That's fine to ask the question. And then let's go down a layer deeper, though, and let's look at the statistics. I mentioned that um, we give about 39 or $40 billion in foreign aid and in whole different, you know, capacities. 5% of that is is food aid. Um, in the United States alone, we're spending about, in the last year, or 2022, uh, $183 billion in domestic food aid. So when we ask ourselves the question, why are we giving so much, you know, overseas versus not, um, we actually have to go back to that question. That's not an accurate, that's not an accurate statement. Right. Yeah. Um, It's not the right question to ask. I would say, why are we not giving giving more? Why are we not diverting more of our um, of our aid toward building resilient food systems in these other countries and then connecting those countries as allies through trade?
0: So, Debra, you, you've been involved in this global agricultural management for a very long time, yeah. a full career. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about two things as we sort of close out the show yeah. over the last next. Can you go a little bit beyond the, uh, the hour? Is I can, right? okay.
1: if your listeners can handle they, it. I'm, I'm sure All they right. can
0: handle it. They are totally engaged. Okay. Uh, what you got poli- smiles on your face? <laughs> <laughs> what policies should the U.S. be using right now to address food security, both here in the U.S. and, importantly, for American national security interests abroad?
1: Yeah, and we've mentioned some of them, so it'll be a bit of a of a summary. Um, one is to increase our domestic spending on research and development. Um, we have a really strong infrastructure here through the land-grant university. I don't know. I went to two land-grant universities. Others that are listening may have. Um, but we need to re-up and reinvest in those land-grant universities and build out our extension services. Um, these universities here, U of M has them. The extension agents that go out into the fields with the farmers and with the industry are, um, you know, are important to connecting the academic research to the, you know, practical application of, of production. So first is upping our investment dollars. Second is upping our research and investment dollars for helping in overseas mm-hmm. investment. So we can link our universities, and we do. We have some linkages between some of the top top ag universities in Brazil, Vagen um, Negen over in Europe, for example, creating these these linkages between our universities and the other systems. The other thing is um, one of the surest ways that we can up our food security and national s- security is to um, to up international exchanges of of agricultural students. So um, huge component because there's a lot of sh- sharing that goes on, and these folks take it back to their countries. Um, next is to reinvigorate and you can't hear it enough from me let's reinvigorate our international trade agenda mm. we pulled ourselves out of things like the trans-pacific yeah. partnership Foolish. you know how long yeah. i was a co-chair of that coalition and um we need to we need to we're behind um we have less free trade agreements than our than our partners do so we're upping the trade agenda um rebalancing some of our domestic um, support and subsidization toward cl- more climate resilient um Production agriculture, we're doing that. The USDA has spent two billion and now another three billion on putting out grants for climate smart commodity grants. Um, I feel like I need to speed through this because there's so much more um, that we can be doing. Um, but you know, on the international scene, we we need to m- maintain engagement, and I would say get us back to the World Trade Organization. That body um, and the fact that we we we're not putting. The, the 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 dispute settlement law judges in place, you know, um, that's actually holding us back. We need forums where we can engage our our partners. We need forums where we can engage the countries who are not our partners, and that's the forum. So those are a few things.
0: Uh, so one of the things that I've sort of getting ready for the show, yeah. I did a little research on on what some of the the national security uh, thinkers have been have been talking about here. Uh, one one title of one article that I have here from uh, War on the Rocks is To Tackle Instability and Conflict, It's Time to Elevate Hunger as a oh, National Security Priority. Yeah. Another was, was uh, Linking Food and National Security in Africa, Lessons yeah. Learned from the Russia-Ukraine Conflict. This paper came out earlier this year. Uh, the Atlantic Council just had a big... Uh, Discussion on a conversation on food, nutrition, and the national security nexus, attended by two retired four-star generals, because they've been around the world and they see these impacts. Uh, Let me ask you this: How important is it uh, in tackling this topic in in the global south in empowering women?
1: Well, considering women produce around the world nearly seventy percent of the of the world's food, it's absolutely critical. Um, and we talk about it. We talk about it, but, um, let's really talk about it, right? When we talk about foreign aid, directing the aid dollars, especially towards some of these, um, what we call sort of gender specific, um, approaches to aid, um, in these smallholder communities, a lot of these farmers, most 70%, as I say, can get upward of that are women. So, um, So tackling national security, tackling the domestic security in those countries and national security and food security at the same time, um, having a um, women-centric agenda is important. But you're also raising the point, which I'm wearing my – I'm advertising today for any of you that can see the the nonprofit we started, Hungry. Our goal is to elevate hunger to the personal agenda of every citizen, not only across this country, but worldwide. So – uh, the, you stated the obvious from these articles. we need h- food security and hunger to be one of the one of the top two to three domestic agenda items um, for, for um, from a public policy perspective and Then I go even farther and call on the private sector. I say you cannot leave the food crisis or food security to the food industry i 'm sorry. Um, every every company has a stake in this every company should have a food security person on staff that knows and understands their their from the community level where they're invested all the way to the corporate level how they're going to empower their communities as it relates to um, ensuring that um, people are moving up the rungs of the economic ladder and they're not hungry Uh, one of the surest surest national security um, tools we have in our toolkit is foreign direct investment going side by side with, with the investment from from government. If we can find ways to get coordinated, directed FDI to some of these production powerhouse zones around the world, and a lot of them are in Africa where we're competing for airspace with China, right? if, if there was a coordinated approach across tech, transportation, telecom, finance, agriculture, manufacturing and we said we're going to go into this production zone and we're going to invest. We're going to give people opportunity. That will um that will be a sure bet on the right side of enhancing national security. Uh,
0: again, it's about thinking about a system of systems. systems. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what what are you personally, with your decades of education, experience, and global connections, doing to address this issue of food security? Your company, uh, Devry BV Sustainable Strategies, works in this area. Could you tell us a little bit more about the consultancy work that you do?
1: Yeah. Yeah, and if you go to my website, which is com, you won't see food and agriculture. I mean, you'll see visuals, but you won't see that we're solely focused on food and ag. That's So it's because what, what we're focused on is um, – ESG and sustainability and say, wait, you're taking a hard left turn. What are you doing, Debra? You just <laughs> talked food security. The foodies know where to find me. I'm not losing the thought leadership platform nor my, my international or domestic engagement. But what we do um, at Debra BV is we walk our um, clients through the approach of putting people and the natural environment at the center of their business. And that sounds, oh, do that sound so green? or No, look. Those are the two key stakeholder businesses in the business to solve problems. So we've got a lot of problems, right? And the we're gonna we're gonna need to take care of humanity and people and nature are really really critical to us surviving as as um, humans. So we 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 work with companies to help them understand how they can enhance revenue streams by focusing on their environmental and their social and their economic um, impacts, and so. Um, We'll work, the bulk of our clients are in food and ag, but we're working across manufacturing, energy, even had a nuclear energy client to say, okay, let's step back and think about what is your impact, both positive externalities and negative externalities on society, and how can we help you um, make some grand pivots and some changes, and so it's about becoming more sustainable businesses And sustainability leads to efficiency, and efficiency leads to good business and higher profitability. So we focus on small and mid-sized enterprises across the value chain. So if any of you small and mid-sized businesses are listening and want to find ways to to future-proof your business, uh, whether it's because of climate change or social issues um,
0: or governance issues, that's what we do for you. So what I'm hearing ESG to you is about maximizing a company's profitability by uh, reducing as much as possible the costs that they have in their entire supply chain and their production side or whatever it is they do.
1: 100%. If we can help them, companies and our clients, become more water efficient, more energy efficient, <clears throat> um, and find you know new ways. I've got a client, for example, um, and we've got clients in Wisconsin. We've got them here in Minnesota. We've got them out in California who's doing um, a transportation audit and they're doing transport optimization in California. So they, they, you know, the roads are clogged out there. Yeah. Um, and so if they don't have to go from Modesto to the Bay area to carry their propane, for example, um, take as many trucks or, you know, find ways to, um, you know, become more efficient by putting meters on their clients, you know, propane <laughs> tanks so they don't just show up and they're not, you know, needed to be serviced. Like, these are this is good business, but it's also reducing their environmental footprint, you know their CO2, their carbon, carbon footprint, etc. So um, we don't think that it has to be a controversial political issue to become a more efficient environmentally sustainable, socially sustainable business. Um, we want to create a safe space to do that. and our goal is to be present in, in communities across the United States. Um, to help companies explore that.
0: It sounds to me like super smart capitalism.
1: Thank you. Thank you. It is <laughs> capitalism at its best. Yeah.
0: So, Debra, I, I always try to give my, my guests the last word here on the show. We've covered a, a wide range of topics today. Uh, what final thoughts would you like to leave with our listeners?
1: Well, first of all, I want to thank you, Don, and thank um, KYMN for having me this morning. And for you out there as a listener, I'm grateful we're going into Thanksgiving tomorrow. And so if we can all pause and take a moment of, you know, quiet time to reflect on all the things we're grateful for, um, that's important. And to think through all of those, not just tomorrow who don't have enough food, but every single day, there's about um, 25,000 people um, a day worldwide that are dying from from lack of lack of food. And so if you can elevate that to your personal agenda and find a way... Um, to make that part of your overall um, existence and giving strategy that would be fantastic um, also my biggest concern on national security and I'll just say it is that um, we as communities are not united mm-hmm. and so we founded hungry.org h-u-n-g-h-r-i.org as a way to unite our communities around something that we can, we 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 all share which is a a need to feed all of our citizens. So if nothing else is going to unite us, my goal is that um, solving hunger together and food insecurity together will. So tomorrow, um, I saw as I drove in, there's a turkey trot. We're going to be doing a turkey trot um, in in Minnetonk with my kids. Get out there with your community, uh, walk it, run it, um, and um, do it with your neighbors, even if even if you don't like some of your neighbors, <laughs> let's come together as communities. And um, I know most turkey trots have the ability to donate to a, to a local food shelf or a food pantry. So, so get out and be part of your community. Unite. And as my sister said, our priests used to always say, no, no, no. The goal is that you need to love your neighbors. You don't need to like your neighbors. But the more you hang out with your neighbors, you, you can move from like to love. So let's all find a way to come together as a community, solve this really big international problem, that um, that we know we can we can solve, let's divert our attention toward that versus all the other things that are distracting us as Americans. By doing that, we will be a stronger nation. Yeah,
0: could you please uh, remind our listeners of the website address for your consultancy?
1: So our consultancy is um, devrybv.com. D-E-V as in Victor R-Y.
0: What um, other resources might you point to our listeners so they can learn a little bit more about food security and what they can do about it?
1: So um, there's a lot out there. If you just typed in food security, you're going to get a a huge smattering of articles. But you can go to the World Food Program USA, the World Food Program um, from international. USDA has a lot of um, information and statistics on domestic food security, lots of surveys. But go local. Um, Type in, you know, what's your local food shelf and um, find a way to, to, to work locally. And then there's Feeding America and... Look, I just had a phenomenal client, um, kind of a pro pro bono or no bono, um, client who is called Growing Hope Globally, which is a community based Um, nonprofit that works across rural communities, across the Midwest, maybe where a lot of your listeners are. They're tied to churches, um, but they work in community and they link farmers here in the United States to farmer projects overseas. And so that's a really good one. I have a whole list and maybe I should put that, um, put that out on our side of places people can go. Hungry is one. Please join us. We need as many um, supporters as possible. Uh, Our goal is to work on a 10-year time trajectory um, to bring communities together, so we've got a lot of resources on the Hungry website as well.
0: What are your family's plans for Thanksgiving?
1: So we're running the turkey trot, and then I'm um, our family's plans are to eat the entire meal I'm cooking and <laughs> the four pies I'm baking, <laughs> um, and then we play a mean game of dominoes or <laughs> boggle or bananagrams. You know, so it's just to be you know uh, I don't know bask in the you know the holiday.
0: Yeah. So. for work. Thank you so much for joining us today here on National Security This Week.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish finished week, everybody. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday tomorrow. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.
1: Weather specialist Bob Matheson has your weather weekday mornings on KYMN.